0: In this little paragraph, we meet one of the most interesting characters in the Old Testament. Melchizedek is considered at length in the New Testament book of Hebrews. He is universally recognized as a type of Jesus Christ, meaning that he prefigures Christ. He establishes a pattern and a shape that helps us anticipate and recognize Christ.
1: Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He prefigures Christ and He establishes a pattern and shape that helps us anticipate and recognize Christ. One of the things that we've been learning over the course of this series is how many of these stories in the Old Testament seem to function in this way. As we talked about in the last episode, there are moral lessons and ethical examples in the Old Testament. But right alongside that, there are these stories that seem to have been recorded primarily to help us understand in advance the significance and the meaning of the life and death of Jesus Christ. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your
0: word
1: is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have
0: your Bible open in front of you to Genesis chapter 14. This is one of those chapters that you might be tempted to skip over. It isn't one of the big chapters in the Abrahamic narrative. It isn't chapter 12 or 15 or 17 or 22 But these in-between chapters are here for a reason. The church father, Chrysostom, put it this way in his sermon on this text. He said, It was not idly or to no purpose that Scripture mixed these matters in with its account, nor is it without point that we are now bringing it to your attention and directing you, in turn, to recall their valor. Rather, our purpose is that from the ensuing instruction you may learn the extraordinary degree of God's power— and also the patriarch's virtue. I think that's true. But I think that there is perhaps even more to this story than Chrysostom knew. Remember, we read the Bible to learn about God, about us, and about how God saves us through the person and work of Christ. So I think it is right to read this story expecting to learn something about redemption. And I think we do. I think we learn something here about temptation, seduction, captivity, bondage, rescue, and restoration. I think we see a pattern that will be repeated in the life of King David, and then again, in an ultimate sense, in King David's greater son, Jesus Christ. So, hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar. Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, by the way, quick pause, if you're looking for a little-known or little-used Bible name for your kids, you can't go wrong with Chedorlaomer, one of my favorite names in the Bible. Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and title, king of Goim. these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chederleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth-Carnaim and Zuzim and Haim, the Amim in Sheva-Kiriathayim and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El-Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Now, historians tell us that all of these names and titles are typical of the time and place, but this battle happened so long ago that it can neither be proven nor falsified by historical method. That being said, there is nothing all that unusual about the basic premise. Petty kings rebelled against their sovereigns all the time, usually unsuccessfully as here. Most of the locations described here now lie submerged beneath the present-day Dead Sea. On its face, this is a long-forgotten battle between long-forgotten kings, and we wouldn't be talking about it at all had not Lot, the nephew of Abraham, been caught up in the fighting. Verse 8 and following tell the story of how that happened. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So the rebellion of the five against the four has failed. And as was common in the battles of those days, the victorious army takes its payment in terms of loot Livestock and slaves. To the victor goes the spoil, as they used to say. And unfortunately for Lot, he and his family have been taken as part of that spoil. However, I don't think we would want to characterize Lot as a completely innocent bystander here or as a completely innocent victim. Look carefully at verse 12. It says, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Well that's very interesting because in just one chapter ago in Genesis chapter 13:12 it says Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom I mean, 13.12 makes it sound like Lot was living on the border of Sodom, as close as he could get without actually living in it. Lot sounds here like a lot of teenagers, right? They want to get as close to the line without actually crossing the line. But what happened to Lot happens to a lot of teenagers. At some point, he crossed the line. Now, why would he have done that, right? Why, chapter 14 says now he's living in it, not near it, okay? He's crossed over. He's in it. Why would he have done that? Again, Genesis 13 holds the answer. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked great sinners against the Lord. So Lot made a decision to pursue worldly wealth, even at the risk of personal and spiritual contamination. And that decision we learn now in chapter 14 came at a very high cost. Imagine how Lot must have been feeling in in chapter 14. He knows now that he is ultimately responsible for his wife and family being taken captive. He knows what will almost certainly happen to his wife and daughters. He knows that his sons will be sold as slaves. He knows that he might be sold as a slave or killed summarily if it's determined that he has no value as a laborer. He knows that he is reaping what he has sown, and he must have been absolutely miserable. The story takes a turn in verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. As Chrysostom said, this is an example of the virtue of Abraham, but it is also an unmistakable picture of the gospel. Here Abraham, the great-great-grandfather of Jesus, rouses himself and takes up the cause of his kinsmen, and he does battle with their enemy, and he frees them from a terrible captivity, and he restores to them all that has been lost in the battle. That, my friends, is the gospel in miniature. That's what David did in 1 Samuel 30, before he became king of Israel, back when he was a warlord for hire. While David was away from the camp, some Amalekites came and stole away all the wives and children, no doubt, again, to sell as slaves. All the warriors in David's army are devastated. 1 Samuel 30, verse 4 says, Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David wept with his men, but then he roused himself and he went off in pursuit of the enemy and he caught up to them. Verse 17 says, David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mended camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought Back all. Abraham brought back all. David brought back all. And Jesus brings back all. He takes up our cause and he makes war upon our enemy and he restores all that the locust has taken. That is why the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says in 2 Corinthians one twenty, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is to him, through him, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Everything God promised us, every blessing that was earmarked for us, everything that our enemy stole from us and kept from us, that is what Jesus has recovered for us that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to god for his glory that my friends is the gospel and we see it anticipated here in the rescue of lot by his kinsman abraham
1: amen pastor paul i want to talk a bit about what we've been calling typology that's a pretty big word for this early in the morning so help us understand that a little better
0: it is a bit of a funny word, and that's partly because it's really a word that we have borrowed from biblical Greek and just dropped into the English language without a great deal of reshaping. It comes from the Greek word tupos, which means pattern or blueprint. So, for example, in Hebrews 8.5, the Bible says, For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Closed quote. That's the word tupos. Moses was shown a pattern or a blueprint on the mountain, and from that blueprint, he was told to build the tabernacle. So that's what the word means in its literal sense. But then sometimes in the New Testament, it is used in a more figurative sense. So, for example, in Romans 5.14, the Apostle Paul says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So there Paul says that Adam was a type. Same Greek word that literally means pattern or blueprint. Adam was a type of the one who was to come, who, of course, was Jesus. So Paul is saying that in some way the story of Adam anticipates part
1: of the story of Jesus. Adam is part of the blueprint, we might say. Okay, but wait, how would this work? Because Adam is sort of one of the bad guys in the story, isn't he? Well, in some ways, yes, but what Paul means in Romans 5 is that Adam establishes
0: a bit of the pattern for the Jesus story, and the part that he zooms in on is the part about how what Adam did affected everyone who came after him. Adam sinned, and because he sinned, every human being born after Adam was born pointed in the wrong direction. We were born downstream from the Garden of Eden and running further and further away from home. The same thing in terms of that federal or corporate pattern applies to the Jesus story, only in reverse. Jesus did something, too, that affected all those who were born in him. It was the opposite, though. Where Adam disobeyed God, that's what Paul says, Jesus obeyed God perfectly. And just like Adam, that now has a consequence for everyone who follows Adam after him. Only in the Jesus story, everyone who is born in him is turned around and starts moving back toward Eden, back toward God and back toward our original design and purpose.
1: All right, I get it. So not all types are parallel types, some are opposites. Exactly. It's the pattern that matters. A lot of what Jesus does
0: actually is turn things around. So we expect a lot of opposite patterns as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament.
1: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Let's jump back into our story now at verse 17. Verse 17 goes on to say,
0: After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet with him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. In this little paragraph, we meet one of the most interesting characters in the Old Testament. Melchizedek is considered at length in the New Testament book of Hebrews. He is universally recognized as a type of Jesus Christ, meaning that he prefigures Christ. He establishes a pattern and a shape that helps us anticipate and recognize Christ. So, obviously, we want to know as much about him as we can. First thing we see is that he is the king of Salem, which was an early name for Jerusalem. The name Salem likely comes from the word for peace. Therefore, we could say that he is the king of peace. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So, he's king of peace and king of righteousness. Even more interesting, Abraham recognizes him as a superior. He tithes to him. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.14 and following, See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So the apostle is arguing in Hebrews 7, 4-10 that the priestly line of Melchizedek is older and superior to the Levitical priesthood because the Levitical priesthood paid tithes to Melchizedek from inside Abraham's body. Now, this becomes important because Jesus is declared to be a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. David prophesied that the Messiah would be a king coming as he would from David's line and a priest spiritually descended from Melchizedek. David said that in Psalm 110. In verse 4, he said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek helps us anticipate at least three things. About Jesus. Number one, he'll be the king of righteousness. Number two, he'll be the king of peace. Number three, he will be a priest from the line of Melchizedek, which is a superior priesthood to the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. There's probably more that we could say. If you want to read it, go and read Hebrews 6 and 7. You won't be disappointed. We jump back into the story at verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourselves. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Abraham here does not want to be thought of as a mercenary. He didn't want people to think that he had entered this war to accumulate spoil. He wanted it known that he acted only on behalf of his kinsmen. He didn't want people to think of God as a military talisman, as though worshiping God gave one favor in war. He wanted to safeguard the name and nature of the Lord. Faith cares about how our actions reflect upon the name of God. Abraham knew that people would be looking at him and learning about God. And he conducted himself accordingly.
1: Thanks be to God. Amen. Pastor Paul, you said in the program audio that Melchizedek helps us anticipate three things about Jesus. Number one, he will be the king of righteousness. Number two, the king of peace. And number three, he will be a priest from the line of Melchizedek which is a superior priesthood to the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. That's a lot to pull out of this very odd little story in Genesis 14.
0: It is a lot. And the funny thing is, that's not even the whole of it. The Bible itself seems to be fascinated with this story. David writes about it prophetically in Psalm 110. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head, closed quote. So David took up this odd little story in Genesis 14 and wrapped it into his prophetic anticipation of the future Messiah. This is David speaking in the Spirit. Jesus, by the way, said that in Matthew 22, 43. So David, speaking in the Spirit, speaking prophetically, says that Jesus is going to be the son of David, but greater than David. He says that he's going to rule in the midst of his enemies. That's a pretty good description of the church scattered throughout all the hostile world. He says he's going to have an army of volunteers at his disposal, and he says that he's going to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So, right in the middle of one of the most significant Messianic prophecies in the entire Bible, we have a reference to this very weird little story in Genesis 14. And then in the book of Hebrews, gets a whole chapter and, and parts of a couple of other chapters. Melchizedek is mentioned in chapters 5 and 6, and then he gets the bulk of chapter 7. So as I said, there is a lot of focus in the Bible on
1: this strange little story in Genesis 14. So help us figure out how to spot those things, because I'll be honest with you, I've, I've read that story before, and it didn't cause me to spend a vast amount of times thinking about Jesus. So how can we get to the place where we spot these connections and use them to better understand and appreciate Jesus? Well, that's a great question, and that really is one of the main reasons we're doing this program.
0: As we said in the first episode, this is not a sermon program. Sermon programs are great. I listen to a bunch of them, but this is not that. This is a Bible-reading program. The goal of this program is to read the Bible together and to get better at reading the Bible together. So your question is the question. And I think a big part of the answer has to be that we need to learn how to read the Bible backwards. Let me unpack that. Most of us read the Bible like we would read any other really long book, like the Lord of the Rings trilogy or War and Peace. We start on page one and we keep reading. And we get bogged a little bit, of course, in Leviticus, but we press through that and we make it, hopefully God willing, in December into the book of Revelation. Then we start up all over again in January 1st in Genesis chapter 1, if we're using some kind of one-year plan. That's great. But the Bible is different than those other books. The Bible is actually shaped kind of like one of those old-fashioned cradles. Martin Luther said that Scripture is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. So think of those old wooden mangers that kind of look like two giant crosses or two giant X's with some planks running between them. The point Luther was making was that the whole Bible runs to Jesus. He is the center. He is the focus. He is the interpretive key. So in a sense, you have to read forward to Jesus and then you have to turn around and read back. You have to go back to everything you've seen thus far and see it again through the lens of the life and death of Jesus Christ. If you don't do that, you risk losing the central message and the saving power. Jesus said that to the religious leaders of his day. He said in John five, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So we need to read forward, and then we need to read backwards. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it actually does make a lot of sense. I love that. So read forward, and then when you get to Jesus, turn around and go back and read everything again through the lens of his life, death, and ministry. That's really helpful. Thank you. And as always, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page just by entering Into the Word into the search bar. We'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as always as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. See you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.